Hey, church family. Well, here we are again with an online service, not because of restrictions related to a virus, but because of power lines being down and 10th line and Argentia being completely closed. We haven't been able to access our facility. And uh, so the church is still gathering, uh, gathering in homes, gathering in backyards, gathering on this long weekend. Small groups are together. Family and friends are gathering together to participate in the service online and enjoying some fellowship uh, afterwards. You know, it's it's hard for me to even say this, but um, I've been in full-time vocational ministry for uh, 18 years now. Uh, before that, I was in full-time ministry as a, as a layperson, as a summer camp counselor, as a Sunday school a teacher, or as a youth leader, or as a worship leader. But it's been 18 years that I've been sort of devoting my full-time working hours to the building up of the church. So that goes back to 2003, 2004, when Lindsay and I were really there at the very beginning of what is now called Hope Bible Church Oakville. We were part of that original core group that saw that church got, get planted and established. Now, that's almost 20 years ago. Uh, 20 years ago, one of the main things that pastors and church leaders and elders were talking about, what everyone wanted to know about was, what do you think about the emerging church? Now, the emerging church was, was sort of this, this movement of, of young pastors and church leaders that were thinking about doing church in different ways. And some of them had some really creative ideas about how churches should worship, the kinds of songs that they sing, or how they should gather and organize themselves. And none of those things were particularly concerning. But what was very concerning about this movement called the emerging church was the way that they approached theology. The main metaphor that they used to describe how they understood the, the teachings of the Bible was, was describing the difference between a wall and a trampoline. They said that evangelical theology normally is like a wall, that the, kind of like the brick wall behind me, that, that, that each piece of doctrine, everything that you believe about God, whether it be the Trinity or whether it be something about the end times or whether it be about the Holy Spirit or about salvation, that they each represent a brick in the wall and all are equally valuable in, in understanding who God is. And so they said it's kind of like a wall. And if you remove one brick from the wall, the wall is going to collapse on itself. Well, the emerging church leader said, no, 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 the theology is more like a trampoline. And, and each point of doctrine is like the springs on a trampoline. And, and they, said, they said that if you remove one of the springs, you can still jump on the trampoline. It's still safe. And they somehow said that, that theology and doctrine needs to be less like a wall and more like a trampoline. Eventually, why I had to explain to you about the emerging church and why no one's talking about it now is because they just kept removing spring after spring after spring after spring. They initially said, well, we'll, just, we'll remove this part about, about hell, or we'll, we will remove uh, this part about God's holiness, or this part about election or God's sovereignty, but spring after spring after spring got removed. You see, the, the truth is that 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 it's good that theology is a wall. They used to say, we well, you know, on a trampoline, you can jump higher and walls keep people out. Well, walls can keep people out and sometimes secondary doctrines can divide people where they shouldn't divide people, but walls are pretty helpful. 
on that storm yesterday, weren't you pretty thankful that you were in a house with walls? I mean, how good was, would your trampoline protect you when there's thunder and lightning and wind and trees are falling down all around you? Do you really, be wanna, do you really wanna be jumping on a trampoline? Or do you want to be founded on the rock, protected by solid walls? You see, doctrine protects us. And what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the church at Corinth was a little bit like the emerging church. They said, yeah, we believe in Jesus. We believe he's the son of God. We believe in salvation, but we don't really believe in this idea of a resurrection. We find it hard to believe that every single believer in Jesus Christ is actually going to be physically resurrected, just like Jesus was physically resurrected. And they said, you know what? That's one spring that we should just take out. And Corinth was really influenced by the Roman culture around them. And in Greco-Roman philosophy and culture, the whole idea was that the soul inside of you was immortal and lasted forever. But the body was just kind of pointless. And, and the body was just temporary. And it didn't really matter what happened with the body. That's why when you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you, you see they were so messed up on sexuality. They're like, well, the food is for the stomach and, and the body's for sexuality. It really doesn't matter what you do or what you don't do. This is why they were sleeping with prostitutes because they had this very low view of the body. But Christian theology teaches, no, we need to honor our bodies and honor the bodies of other people because they're made in the image of God and because we have the hope of the resurrection. So Paul is addressing this false error, this idea that you can believe in Jesus without believing in a physical resurrection. And so turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and find verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and find verse 12. I have to find it there my, uh, myself. Here we go. Verse 12, Paul says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We're going to work our way from, from verses 12 all the way down to, to verse 34 today. I'm going to break it into three sections, how Paul addresses this, uh, this issue of, of the resurrection and the Corinthians who didn't believe in the resurrection. And here's the first thing he does. Paul draws a logical connection. So if you're taking notes today, that's point one. He draws a logical connection. Notice how in the verses that I just read, he keeps saying if, if, if. He's, he's making these conditional statements. He's describing these hypothetical situations. He says, if there is no resurrection, then, if, then, if, then. You see the word if in verse 13, 14, 15, 16, and 19. All these conditional clauses. Now, he begins in verse 12 by saying, now, if, 
If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? He says, Christ is proclaimed. If this is what is being proclaimed, then why do you believe something different from what has been proclaimed? Remember back last week when Phil was walking us through chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. Christ was was crucified in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried in accordance with the scriptures. He was raised in accordance with the scriptures. This was of first importance. This is what was proclaimed. Verse 11 stops by saying, this we preach and so you believed. And so Paul says, this is what I'm preaching. And if this is what I'm preaching, why is it that you don't believe it? And then Paul makes four really clear, sorry, five really clear uh, statements. Again, I pictured all of these being on the screen for you this morning. But if you're taking notes, I'll try to read them as slowly as I can. If Christ isn't resurrected, Paul says his preaching is in vain. Number two, the, the belief of the Corinthians is in vain. And that living Christians are still in their sins, and that dead Christians have perished, and that all Christians should be pitied. I'll say it one more time. If there is no resurrection, Paul says his preaching is in vain. He says the Corinthians believing is is also in vain. He says that living Christians are still in their sins, and that dead Christians have perished. And then number five, all Christians should should be pitied. So Paul says in, in verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. That's number one and number two. Paul's preaching is in vain and their believing is in vain. Then look with, look with me down at verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. The resurrection of Christ, he... he proved that that our sins are forgiven. It was sort of like I, I sometimes use this this illustration of when you're at the um at, at the point of sale at a store and they pass you the little machine and you tap your card or you insert your card and enter your pin and there's that moment there's that moment where you're waiting to see transaction approved. The resurrection of Jesus was was a way of showing that the transaction was approved that our sins have been paid for. Remember back in chapter six, Paul kept saying, such were some of you. You you used to be guilty of this or guilty of that. Such were some of you. But Paul Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then, then you're still in your sins. So Paul here is trying to communicate to this church how their resurrection is connected to Christ's resurrection. And if Christ isn't raised, and if they're not raised, He goes through this big list. His preaching is pointless. Their faith is pointless. Living Christians are still in their sins. Those Christians who have have already died, uh, Paul says, they're not with the Lord then. If Christ isn't raised and if there is no resurrection, then those people have just flat out perished. Look at verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep, which is a euphemism for death, in Christ have perished. Verse 19, and if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be pitied. Paul says, if all we're living for right now is this life, Paul says, we then shouldn't be living like Christians because we are not, we are not hoping in this world. This world is not our home. There are things that we give up 
because we know that there is something better coming. There are things that, that we go without. There are things that we do and actively participate in that would make no sense if there was no resurrection at the very end. Paul says, if, if Christ has not been raised, then Christians are to be the most pitied people on planet Earth. Here's a question I have for you in terms of application. When your neighbors or coworkers or classmates or non-Christian friends look at you and they don't believe in the resurrection, they, they don't believe in life after death, do they feel sorry for you? Do they feel bad for you that you're spending your Sunday mornings regularly gathering at our facility or uniquely right now watching this service on YouTube? Are, are you pitied among the world? Because Paul says we should be living so radically different lives that our friends should feel sorry for us and, and that our life would be pointless and our faith would be pointless if Christ has not been raised and if we don't also share in the hope of the resurrection. Now go back with me to verse 13. I'm kind of charging ahead here. I just want us to make this, remember this point is called the logical connection. Verse 13, Paul says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, and he says, then not even Christ has been raised. So Paul's making a connection between our, our resurrection and Christ's resurrection. These are two bricks in the wall of our theology. And when you remove one, the other begins to fall apart as well. So Paul begins with logical uh, connections. Now, a little bit about those who have fallen asleep. Uh, the Bible tells us that there are uh, that there are those who have who have passed away, and that they have gone to be with the Lord. Jesus said to the thief on the cross in Luke 23, today you will be with me in paradise. Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 to 23, he said, I'd rather depart, depart, which meant to die and be with Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about the, the, the gathering of, the, of the, the, the firstborn, the assembly of the firstborn from the dead. Revelation 6 describes the, the souls of those who were martyred for their faith under the altar. They're there in heaven. They're with the Lord. Now, the Bible says that, that when Christ returns, that those, that those who have gone to be with him spiritually will be will be reunited with their physical bodies, a, a new resurrection body. And we'll get into that in the weeks to come as we get into chapter 15. And that those who are still living when Christ returns, their bodies will be immediately uh, transformed. But more about that later. So Paul begins with a statement of making logical connections. That's the, that's the first point. Here's the second one. Paul establishes theological foundations. He, he, so he makes logical connections and then he establishes some theological foundations for us uh, to think through. And he gives us, uh, he gives us four of them. So I'll, I'll read them to you now and then you can begin to jot them down. The theological concept of first fruits. That's number one, first fruits. Number two is Adam. Uh, number three is the kingdom. And number four is the Trinity. 
Paul lays these, these theological foundations. Number one, the first fruits. Number two, Adam. Number three, the kingdom. And number four, uh, the Trinity. Now look with me at verse 20. Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, D- d- delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who has put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. So remember, the first section that we were looking at when Paul was making the logical connections, it kept saying if, 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 all of these hypothetical scenarios, all of these conditional clauses after one another. But look at, listen to the change in verse 20. It says, but in fact... So Paul's saying, okay, we've dealt with all of the, all of the conditional uh, and hypothetical to, to make the logical connections to say that you can't stop believing in your own resurrection because if you do, you have to stop believing in Christ's resurrection. And then here's all the things that follow as a result of that. Now Paul says in verse 20, but in fact, in fact, this is the truth. In fact, Christ has been raised. And then he says he's been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so this is the concept of first fruits. This is the first theological foundation that Paul lays down. The first fruits was the first part of the harvest. At harvest time, before all of the fields, everything has been brought in, all of the crops are brought in, on the first day of reaping, that, that first amount, that first 10% was, was set apart for the Lord. This is a practice in Exodus chapter 23, Leviticus chapter 23, it's in Nehemiah, it's all over the Old Testament, this concept of first fruits. The idea is, this is like the installment. This is, this is like the down payment or the guarantee. Almost like this is the prototype of what's going to be mass produced. And Paul says Christ's resurrection was like a first fruits. It was, this, it was one person who was raised from the dead in a very special way. Remember, they, they were sitting in an empty room, the disciples, and it was locked. And then Christ suddenly appeared. And and so Christ's body was special. It was, it was different as a resurrected body. And, and his resurrection body was like the prototype. It was like the first fruits. It was the guarantee that resurrection is going to be mass produced for all those who follow him. Verse 21 says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, so also in Christ all may be made alive. So now Paul moves to the second foundation. He talked about first fruits. Now he's talking about Adam. He's going all the way back to Genesis. And notice the clarity with which Paul is contrasting Adam with Christ. The, the idea here is that there's one man. Adam was one man and Christ is one 
man. Notice, notice how it says in verse 22, through a man came death. And then it says, through a man came resurrection. Then notice right after that, it says, in Adam, all die. And then it says, in Christ, all are made alive. That it all centers on the, the, the spread of sin and the reality of original sin and the death that is the wages of sin and all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. All of that is true because of Adam. We've all descended from Adam. But the free gift of eternal life and salvation and, yes, resurrection and glorification, all of that comes through one man, Jesus Christ. And so Paul establishes that theological foundation, the first fruits and then and then Adam and then next the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Remember, Adam and Eve were supposed to be kings and queens. They were supposed to be vice regents. Read Genesis chapter one. They were supposed to have dominion over the whole earth. But Satan lied to them. He said, you will surely not die if you eat from the fruit. They ate from the fruit and they died and they abdicated their throne and Satan was put on the throne. And part of Christ's coming was to reclaim the kingdom. And so Christ has done that. He has won the ultimate victory and and we we will see that ultimately fulfilled at his return. Look with me at verse 20. Three, it says, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, there's that word again, the first fruits, at his coming, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Now, in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, it says that Christ disarmed every authority and every power, but they still exist here on earth. They, 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 they're still at work. But this text tells us that that which has been disarmed, they've been weakened. But now it says that when Christ returns, they will be, they will be destroyed at the coming of, of the kingdom, the coming of Christ. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the resurrection when, when, when the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That those who are resurrected will never die again. Adam and Eve were never supposed to die. And when we are resurrected, when we have our resurrection bodies, we will never die. Revelation chapter 21 verse 4 says, He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. There'll be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain. The former things have passed away. Verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. It, Paul's just making clear here. Oh, by the way, when I say when, when the father put all things in subjection under Christ's feet, the father did not be in subjection to the son. That's not what's being described here. The son who was eternally preexistent with the father and as Jesus said in so many places is one with the father. 
Uh, He said that in uh, John chapter 10, verse 30, he told uh, the disciples in John 14, verse 9, that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Although he was eternally preexistent, that he's one with the Father, that when he came to earth, he actually subjected himself to the Father. Philippians chapter 2 describes this most clearly. In chapter 2, verse 6, it says that he did not, he was in the form of God and he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. He, he, he functionally became subordinate to the Father. And we see that all over the Gospels as well. Jesus did say in John 5 that I and the Father are one. But he also said in John 5, Jesus said, I can do nothing of my own accord. In the very same chapter, he says he only does what he sees his Father doing. The Son lived in submission to his Father to accomplish the the purpose of rescuing us from our sins and guaranteeing for us the resurrection that Paul is describing here. Now in in verse 28, it says, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. And so Christ again will, will deliver the kingdom to his father. The father delivered it to him to put all things under his feet and then the son will deliver it to, uh, to God the father. And so the, those are the four theological of foundations. We had first fruits, we had Adam, we had kingdom. And then that last section that I was just describing, that's the Trinity. That's how God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit relate to one another. The Father, Son, and Spirit are equal. And yet in accomplishing the rescue mission, Christ became functionally submissive, subordinate to the Father to accomplish the, the return of, of the kingdom and to welcome us into, uh, into the kingdom as well. So we've looked at the logical connections. We've looked at the theological foundations. And now Paul wants to get into the, these are the, these are the practical applications. This is why the resurrection actually matters in everyday life. Now, as you've been going through this passage, you're like, wow, this is like a really deep passage. How come I've never heard someone preach on, on all of 1 Corinthians before? I'll tell you why. It's because of, of the next verse. This is why 1 Corinthians tends to, chapter 15, tends to get ignored by a lot of preachers. Look at verse 29. It says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? What on earth is that about? I mean, I don't know. I, I just got to flat out say, I don't know. Paul, just similar to the head covering situation, Paul is talking to something, talking to the Corinthians about something the Corinthians know about and something that Paul knows about, but something that we don't know about. And something that church history for a long period of time afterwards is pretty silent about. We simply don't know what's being described. There's literally 40 different options that theologians have come up with to try to describe. If you're okay, I'm not sure what you're doing this afternoon, but I can make this video an hour long and I'll walk through those 40. How about I, how about I just break it down to two? One is this idea that people were being vicariously baptized on behalf of believers 
who died before they had an opportunity to be baptized. And so someone came to Christ and just like the thief on the cross, they know that they were saved because we're not saved by baptism, we're saved by faith. But just to make sure another believer would get baptized for them. Or, that, so that's the one option. Uh, the other option is this idea that we're all dead in our sins. And when we get baptized on behalf of the dead, it's, we're baptized on behalf of ourselves. And it's just a way of describing, now that's a little bit awkward linguistically, but it makes sense uh, theologically. But really what Paul is getting at here is, uh, so we don't understand what baptism of the dead is about, but we know what baptism is about. We know that baptism is a symbol of cleansing because it happens in water. We know that baptism is a sign of membership in the church because everyone has to do it. Galatians 3, men, women, slave, free, Jew, Gentile. But we also know that baptism is a symbol of death going under the water and of resurrection. So we may not know what baptism of the dead means, but we certainly know what baptism means. And so, so what do we take from this? We simply know that, that, that our practice of baptism as a church, although we don't practice baptism of the dead, Mormons practice that, and, and, and throughout church history, this hasn't been a practice. But, but for us, we, every time we see baptisms, we have a lot of baptisms coming up in our church, which is really exciting, is that every time we see a baptism, it's a reminder of the reality of the resurrection that we're hoping in. So practically speaking, Paul talks about baptism. Then Paul talks about suffering, his own suffering. He says in in verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I thought I fought with beasts in Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul's like, if there is no resurrection, Paul's like, why am I going through all this? Why am I continually being arrested and beaten? And, and why, why am I being thrown to wild animals, he says, in Ephesus? Now, that could actually be physical wild animals. There's a couple of reasons why we are a little bit skeptical about that, because number one, he probably wouldn't have survived. And number two, he was a Roman citizen, so, so the Roman government wouldn't have allowed for that to take place. Maybe Paul's talking, you know, uh, Psalm 57, Psalm 22, where enemies are described as, as wild beasts. But Paul says, why am I suffering? Because if, if Christians don't have a strong theology of the resurrection, they won't have a strong theology of suffering. I mean, Job, even though Job suffered so much, he even understood my Redeemer lives and I will see him in the flesh. And, and so, so if Christians are going to have a proper theology of suffering... We must have a theology of the resurrection. We can't take that brick out of the wall. It's got to stay in there because it makes all of this make sense. Romans 8 tells us all creation is groaning. We're groaning. We're longing for things to be made new. We're longing for the resurrection of our physical bodies and the resurrection of this world. And then then he quotes Isaiah chapter 22 Isaiah was prophesying and telling the people, you, you need to clean up your act. You need to change your ways. And then the people just said, ah, you know what? Who cares? Let's eat, drink for tomorrow. We'll just die. And, and Paul says, no, we, we can't be like that. We can't be like unrepentant 
a people. We must trust that God loves us and that God has a plan for us. And even when we suffer and struggle, even when we face persecution, even when we face illness, even when we face all of the different trials and tribulations that come our way, it's the hope of the resurrection that encourages us and spurs us on. So Paul speaks practically about baptism, and then he speaks practically about suffering, and then he just speaks about the pursuit of holiness, the the process of sanctification in our lives, and how that is related to the resurrection. Look with me at verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. He says, bad company corrupts good character. It says in Proverbs 13, verse 20, that whoever walks with the wise will become wise, but the, but the companion of fools suffer harm. Paul says, wake up. Don't go on sinning. Bad company corrupts good character. The Corinthians were so influenced by Roman and Greek culture that didn't believe in the resurrection. And because they didn't believe in the resurrection, because they only believed in the immortality of the soul, they said, you can do whatever you want with your body. That's why they were so messed up sexually. Paul says, listen, you guys are living too much in the world. Your character is being corrupted by the relationships that you have. So I gotta ask you, Are you walking with the wise or are you a companion of the fool? Are are you spending time with people who love the Lord Jesus? Or are you spending time with people who are drawing you away into the ways of this world? Are you spending time with people who love God and revere his name? Or are you spending time with people who use God's name in vain? And rather than you influencing them, to follow Jesus, they are actually influencing you to follow the world. Students, young people, who are you spending time with? Who are you following on social media? Who are you looking up to? Who are you aspiring to follow? And listen, it, it, peer pressure and all of that doesn't stop when we're out of middle school. It goes on into high school and into college. It, it, it goes on and on and on. Who are we looking to? Who are we following? Who are our companions? And then Paul really just hits the hammer on the head with this last line in verse four. He says, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Remember, he's writing to the Corinthians, the ones who thought they were so wise, the ones who thought they had everything figured out. The ones who continually said, we have knowledge. And Paul said, that's puffing you up. Your knowledge is puffing you up. And Paul says, you know what? At the end of the day, the way you guys are living, it's like you have no knowledge of God. And I say that to your shame. You, you can't simply take the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of believers and say that you can believe everything else but not believe that. Theology is not a trampoline. It's a wall. And yeah, it, it does draw a line. It draws a line between who's a believer and who's an unbeliever, who's a Christian and who's a not Christian, who, and who's not a Christian. And sometimes lines are important. Boundaries are important. We just want to make sure, loved ones, that our theology is founded on 
the rock and that is a strong foundation and that, and that is being lived out practically. So again, my points uh, this morning are Paul makes a logical connection, then he lays theological foundations and then practical application. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, this has been a unique day, a unique weekend, and we're thankful for technology, the opportunity to gather in this way. And Lord, this message has been a, a, a heavy one, a lots of content that I've tried to condense for this video. And Lord, I just, I pray in the name of Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would take just even the text, even the words that have been read, and use that to build up and to encourage uh, the people of God to worship and live in the power of the Spirit of God in the name of the Son of God for the glory of you, Father God. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to do that. God, we, we pray and we look forward to that glorious resurrection. We look forward over the next several weeks to be thinking about the theology of the resurrection and what it means for us. Lord, help us to live out these truths. Help us not to be corrupted by bad company, but help us to pursue holiness. Help us to endure suffering and help us to delight in you and in the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.